Hi, and welcome to EDM Obscura. I am joined today by NF. NF is a uh, programmer, producer, and all-around gentleman, scholar, and um, master master of comedy, from what I am led to believe. <laughs> um, Setting me up for failure here. That's, that's the idea. You, you know, you... You, put, you gave me a box to work in, and um, I will do my best to work within it. Um, I can respect that. Um, today we're going to be discussing, um, is this just going to be an hour and a half about the social dilemma? Um, is what I've decided this is going to be. Um, so welcome, NF. And before we get going, I have um, an introductory question for you. Okay. Do you know what it is? Not sure. Not sure. Are you interesting? Um, oh, yes. Uh, undecided. Undecided. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, interest is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. That's true. Um, sometimes I don't even find myself interesting, so I don't even know what how to answer that question. Right, or what? You can tell me at the end of the interview, I guess. You know, it's it's now it's on the audience's mind, and they can kind of, you know, go through that as they're <laughs> listening to this. Yeah, I'll constantly. I'll, I'll, now I feel like I'll be constantly judged. That's perfect. Now I feel comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's you know that's what the well, that's you, you know you've listened to the show. You know how great I am at you know putting people at ease and making them feel, you know, mm. incredibly comfortable. Mm. No, I'm prepared. I'm all right. <laughs> I like that you That's kind cool. of were approaching this like you were going to some sort of like mental war. It's kind of the <laughs> vibe I got from the way you were talking. Uh, just from experience, like anytime I do anything in public, I try and take it seriously because, you know, you, ne you never know where stuff might end up or yeah. who might be listening. If anything, if the internet has taught us anything is that people will interpret what you say very differently to what you mean. Right. Regardless well, of what you say and how you say it. Well, of course. And especially with the kind of dryness that I'm kind of guilty of. Yeah. And I'm almost yeah, I mean, and you also, you also did, you know, liken this, your, your philosophy a bit to like Eric Andre. And I'm a big Eric Andre fan, but I, you know... I would be stealing myself before going on his show. Right, That's right. That's for sure. But, so, speaking of the internet, I understand that you helped create the internet. Uh, yeah, I was one of a team of five people back in the 50s who originally created the internet. That's fascinating. Were you, uh, and what was your role there, originally creating the internet? <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't really create the internet, but I work on internet software. I'm you know, there are millions of people responsible for the current state of software and the internet, and I suppose I'm one of them. And what, what software do you work on? Well, the most notable project that I've worked on is a programming language called Go, which was developed by a team at Google, and I was on that project for six and a half years. Oh, wow. Basically, since its, since its beginnings till... Yeah, six years after that. And um, that was, I joined Google to work on that project and I've been at Google since then. So that was back in 2010. Oh, wow. 
So, yeah, I'm verging on 11 years at Google now. Yeah, so what goes uh, into that? Like, what leads you to sort of be developing, not like programming, but actually to be developing a programming language? Well, I mean, it's not. it wasn't my idea or my brainchild or anything. And when I joined, I was a very junior team member, by far the most junior team member. Um, and so... I can, I can tell you like what goes into creating new language, like what motivates it, which is uh, programming is as much a craft um, as it is engineering or anything. Um, there's a lot of different ways of doing things. And um, there are some pretty like fierce philosophical lines that are drawn in the programming community. Like there are, definite camps of people that think you should do things this way or that way or whatever. So the reason we have a plethora of programming languages is, you know, some programming language languages are better for certain tasks than others. Right. And so you have like programming languages suited to a particular thing. Um, and, you know, as the kind of programs that we write change, um, the requirements that we have from our languages change. Um, and one of the big disadvantages with some of the really big established languages, at least at the time, is that they tend to, they tend to accumulate stuff over time. They, they accumulate features, they accumulate tools and processes that, that just make things like more and more complicated. Um, and uh, once you add something, you can't really take it away. So, like, the big, the big sort of example of this is C++, which is what, you know, Ableton or whatever is written in most VSTs. Most uh, architectural um, software as well. Yep, yep. Um, and most, like, AAA games are all written in C++. Um, and because C++ is used for such a variety of things and it has been for such a long time, like, it has a lot of stuff in it to enable a lot of different things. And um, as a result, you kind of have this sprawling mass of language features, and it can be... I, I don't know anyone who really knows C++, like, properly, like, fully. And I know some great programmers, but it's just... There's, there's too much to internalize. Um, and so a lot of Google's infrastructure is written in C++, uh, or it was back in 2010. Um, but a lot of the stuff that we do, uh, doesn't really require this sort of, uh, extremely sophisticated, uh, language that is C++. And so Go is basically a language designed to be small and simple and easy to understand, to have great tools specifically for the kind of work that we were doing at Google at the time, which is building server software. Um, and you know, gratifyingly, since the launch of Go, like a lot of a lot of people in Google and outside um, have seen Go as being really valuable for doing that kind of thing. So it's really succeeded beyond uh, any of us really suspected. But I don't take credit for its design or anything. I was right. hired um, to be because I was you know uh, a bit younger than most of the other engineers. Came from a different background. I came from more of a um, web development background um, and so I sort of acted as a uh, a bridge between the team and the community um, of people that, that that a lot of these 
a lot of the Go developers were kind of a bit disconnected from because they'd been working at these big companies for a really long time. They had really different careers to the average programmer today. Um, and so I was able to help like bridge the whole, um, the, the, the sort of the, the gap between the team and, and the community. And so that was, that was kind of my main role, but I was like an engineer and I was writing documentation and giving talks and going to conferences and all this kind of stuff. So it's got to be intimidating um, being thrown at conferences at such an early age. Yeah. Well, I was in my, I was in my late twenties. Okay. So not, I'm, I'm an old man now. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, I, uh, it was, it was intim- The most intimidating thing was I was, I was responsible for representing the work of these people that I really respect. Right. And I really wanted to do a good job. And that was probably the single best thing about the job is that I, um, I felt really, really strong pressure to do a really good job. Um, for the first time in my life, really, um, I never really believed very much in a lot of the tech work that I'd done before. Then it was all pretty trivial or unimportant or for small, you know, just small things where it wasn't the core business to have a, you know, whatever I was doing wasn't really that important, but like on this, it was like, Oh my God, if I don't put everything into this, then I'm going to feel really ashamed. So, right. um, So you got, you got a ton of sleep during those six years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It, it it just about ruined me really, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, those kind of sort of great monolithic projects tend to um, destroy the uh, backs of the people who carry them. Yep. But yeah, I was just. I, I, by the time I left the project, I was well and truly burned out, and it took me years to recover. It was a very strange time. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced burnout, but it's like a really oh, subtle um, thing that creeps up on you. I mean, I'm you know? still in it. I you know graduated from architecture school two two years ago, and. I think that last year I took off Christmas Day. It was the only day I didn't work at least eight hours. Jesus. Um, well, it's like I had very lofty ambitions that did not come to fruition. So mm. I maybe wouldn't, um, just because of the sort of politics of the industry. You know, I mm-hmm. know very well how that is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, architecture is probably even more competitive than software these days. Yeah, I mean, there, well, it's because there's not, there's so so little opportunity in it, I think, right now. Mm-hmm. And that's not to be kind of diminutive toward my own profession, but the reality is, you know, there's only so many, you know, huge buildings that are getting built and, you know, mm-hmm. so many massive kind of projects where people are, people care about design in the yeah. way that, you know, you leave architecture school caring about design. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, whereas know, I guess a lot of the buildings that are built today are just from the same plan that of thousands of other buildings. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and especially at a junior level, to do work on interesting projects, you have to come from beans, you know? Mm-mm-mm. Like, the one position I got offered that would have really kind of set my career in the right way would have required me to move from Florida to London and, like, paid, pay for everything myself for, right. you know, at least... A year. Right. Um, like an internship kind of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, internship yeah. with a master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of brutal. Yeah, no, but I mean, that's, you know, the reality of the profession. So I think, and I haven't really been able to get myself to work much past kind of a 50, 60 hour work week since then. Because mm. I'm just, I'm still kind of just burnt down from it and disillusioned in the wrong ways, I think, that. I think I kind of have been sort of talking to myself about like when I'm in my early thirties, it'll, the career will ramp back up again. Mm. You know? Yeah. I mean, working lots and lots of hours doesn't seem to do anything for me. Like I, after a certain point in the week, I'm just, I have nothing more to give. You know, I don't, my procrastination goes into overdrive. Right. You know, uh, yeah, the whole like work smarter, not harder thing definitely applies to the kind of work that I do anyway. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, more than ever, I, I now like the way I manage my work is I'm really managing my emotions and motivation. That's pretty much how I get work done is just sensing when, like, I pay a lot more attention to my feelings when I'm trying to figure out what to do and how to do it, which sounds counterintuitive but no but like you're like trying to find the right emotional wave to ride to be productive mm. in the right way mm. right is that what i'm mm. getting yeah and like the procrastination urge is totally a um emotional one you know you you're approaching something you don't want to do and you don't want to feel that feeling so you deflect and do something else right and um, yeah i've gotten better at seeing that that's happening and just waiting for it to pass and you know not beating myself up for not getting anything done for the last half an hour, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I'm <laughs> working on it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, that's maybe make this uh, less of a therapy session. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I saw this movie, the social dilemma. You said you want, you said you had some talk thoughts about it. Well, I haven't seen it, but I have some, I know what it's about. And maybe for the listeners, you could briefly summarize what you learned from the film or, or, or what you'd be interested in talking about. Yeah, well, I think um, the most kind of common takeaway people I get from, I hear from people and kind of came with myself is like, I kind of already knew all this stuff, but like hearing it recontextualized in this way kind of makes it kind of loom heavy, heavier in your head again. Like kind mm. of, I guess, like after seeing like Blackfish, you're like, oh yeah, see, the world is really fucked up. And then, you know, yeah. Um, so the, the uh, my understanding is that it's a bunch of tech people saying, "Oh my God, what did we create? This is ruining society." Um, there's a lot of dark patterns in how all this software is developed. It's addictive. It encourages divisiveness. Is that the kind of thrust of the? Oh, it's, the there's totally a lot of that. There, but I think a lot of their heaviest. There's sort of like a through line of like these sort of three like puppet masters playing with like this kid's emotions by like what they're what the uh, feed is giving him. Oh, okay. Um, psychologically. Oh, is it a fictional film? No, I mean it's just no, no. It's a lot of you know ex. A lot of people uh, who, you know, profited massively off these things talking about how terrible mm. they are for the world. Yeah. It's, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, like, yeah, you, uh, Chamath Palaptia is the kind of hilarious kind of example. Do you know about him? No. He, um, 
he was like a early guy, like he was an early person in charge of growth at Facebook who now spends every moment he can hand talking about how terrible social media is for ripping parts of society <laughs> while running a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. Great job. Issue with social media is to maximize profits, you need to maximize the information you gather, which means maximizing engagement, which means maximizing outrage. Right? So they found a way to monetize people's willingness to like disagree and argue with each other. Um, man, if we could so do that, yeah. if Mr. Bill could find a way to do that, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this is, but I, yeah, so I, I feel like the, the, we would be way better off if instead of it being like a handful of big players, it was like many thousands of small players. And if anyone could like be part of that in a very small way. Right, right. And you've probably heard of like Mastodon, which is a Twitter-like social network. You may have heard of it. Um, vaguely. I, could you kind of explain it to the audience? Yeah, so it launched a few years ago to a bit of fanfare, but then relatively little uptake. But then it's seen a lot of organic growth since then. And basically it's like Twitter, except instead of there being like one company, Twitter, that runs Twitter.com, anyone can set up a Mastodon instance and you can follow people from other instances and reply to them and so on. But like the person who runs the instance, they own the content, they have policies, like there are some Mastodon instances that allow you to post anything and there are some that, you know, are like vegan centric and you're not allowed to even post pictures of dead animals, you know, like, or, or food that's made from dead animals. Um, and so they, by having this federated architecture where it's like, there's no central authority, you let communities like set their own rules and police themselves. Um, and you know, as a result, like there's no one like profiting from this, this thing. And right. like all the communities can easily afford to like run their own instances. Um, you don't need to be a massive company to, you know, serve everything for everyone. And, you know, the internet was originally designed to be decentralized and, um, the degree to which it is centralized is, is pretty sad. I think, I think it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. I mean, same. I've, I definitely, you know, saw that shift, I guess, from being like, you know, like in my teens during the 2000s and just like watching that happen, especially during the late 2000s where you went from like mm -hmm. maybe 2008 to 2016, I think was kind of very mm -hmm. pronounced, but maybe just because that was when I was kind of coming of age. Mm -hmm. But you did kind of see like, remember when you actually like went to websites versus like when you went to like three websites? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When people had home pages, you know, when right. when um, you would go and see if someone had updated their page, or you went to like a thing like um, stumble upon. It was like a very popular thing for a little while, mm -hmm. where you just go and like find like a hundred page, hundred different websites. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel a bit sad about all of that, and a bit worried, and I don't really have any solutions. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah, I mean, if it feels like a, you know, I'm very much in agreement with you. It, it just feels like it's a legislative issue that hasn't been handled adequately, mm. Mm. at least from so, my perspective. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's there's also the fact that like, 
if you think of the internet as like a hive mind, which is not too far from the truth, like it's, it's to some degree, it's very strange that now, like most people on the planet are very connected with each other. Like that's really different to how it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Right. And, um, if you consider that thing that connected all those connected people as a thing, it's a very young thing. And so we're still like in the really, really early days of whatever this is. And so I fully expect big shakeups to happen and things to really change dramatically over the next sort of 10, 20 years. And you kind of hope they do and ideally for the better, mm. you know, hopefully that we don't have more repeats of what happened in Myanmar. Yeah, Sorry. that's Sorry. funny, actually. I, I, it's funny because when we were talking about this, I was like, I don't really want to talk about politics. I don't want to be talking about, you know, oh, my bad. I can, we can or whatever. But no, no, but I, I just think it's funny. Like, when I was thinking about that, I was like, if you were to ask me about politics, instead of talking about Trump, I would have said, yeah, well, Aung San Suu Kyi's regime got reelected and, you know, they're committing genocide. And yeah, that, that was going to be my zinger for you. So it's funny that, that you brought it up. I think I talked about it on, well, they, one, they bring it up in The Social Dilemma. It's brought up prominently. Uh-huh. I like that you anticipated me and brought Zingers to the table. <laughs> I just thought, you know, because I was listening to the episode with Toast, and, you know, when politics came up, you guys just immediately started talking about American politics. And I guess he lives in the States, probably? No, he lives uh, in Vancouver. Oh, okay. Well, in yeah. North America, at least. So right. that's topical. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been known to kind of, and I'm not, and I'm, and I don't want to make, I want to be clear. I'm not asking you for your opinion on this, but I have been known to throw in a, so what do you think about the Uyghur genocide in China? Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. maybe juxtapose that with like what I, ICE is doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I, so, I mean, I try to be, you know, less American centric than if possible. I mean, it's hard not to resist the allure of such a shiny, disgusting, fascinating topic that is American politics. Like, it's very entertaining. Right, um, but I think it's also kind of, you're missing a lot of the point if you don't also look at what's happening in other places. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, we, especially, like we said, like, a lot of countries where social media is very kind of new... And so you're seeing the effect, the effects that it's having on American politics, mm. but like scaled up to a thousand, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and not and trying to like learn from that and use that as like a anticipatory thing. Yeah. And particularly in, in a lot of like developing nations, um, you know, Facebook is the internet to them. Right. You know, I've, I've been into internet cafes in Indonesia as early as like, 11, 12 years ago, and, like, every single person on the computer is all just looking at Facebook. So, uh, people who have not been so exposed to media, like, you know, in Australia, in the United States, we have, like, or had, maybe, a relatively healthy uh, media industry and landscape like people were fairly savvy about, oh, you can't read everything you read or, you know, there are at least competing viewpoints. But then right, when you, right. t- you, you take people who have barely any involvement in any of that stuff in, and barely any life experience with it, and then you give them 
a propaganda feed, you know. Right. It's just a recipe for a genocide. That's just what will happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can kind of move away from top of genocide and politics. We should talk about music. Yeah, that well, that's what I was. That's, that's what I was going to suggest. That's why we know um, each other. So. Right, right. We know each other from Bill Assist Group. We've chatted on there uh, once or twice, I think. Mm. Um, aside from just like general kind of shit posting, which at your suggestion, I was doing a lot of yes uh, today, and <laughs> I was doing that for you, man. Oh well, I appreciate it. I was trying to stir the pot. Um, <laughs> well, as soon as I bring up vocal chops being a bad thing, I kind of just expect a wave of hate. Yeah, I don't even really. I feel like I'm so out of touch that I'm not even quite sure what is shit posting and what's not anymore. And sometimes I wonder if the people who are shit posting know. Yeah, no, the line gets kind of blurry. Um, I was um, referring to the theremin as an electric kazoo this morning <laughs> with someone who really didn't want to concede that the theremin is kind of a silly instrument. You've watched those videos with, like, the master theremin player, you know? Right. And, like, people like, oh, my God, this exquisite sound, such control. And I'm just sitting there thinking... It just sounds kind of silly to me, but um, it's a taste thing. I don't know. Right. Well, I mean, I think, especially like if you think about it from a technology standpoint, if like something is like that unwieldy that it's like very impressive that someone can like hold their instrument in tune, <laughs> maybe it wasn't a well-designed instrument. <laughs> I mean, they're very cool. I keep meaning to get one to use for like control signals so okay. that you can do expressive things with you know like a you know modulate a filter with the signal instead of just modulating pitch um, right like that would be really cool there's something it's like a ring that you put on it's a motion tracking ring yeah yeah um like some bands used to do that back in the day for like their bass players would do use it to like do dubstepy kind of stuff like muse is a good example yeah yeah true yeah, but I saw I saw someone on Instagram with one, and they were they had like, you know, one gesture on the filter and another on like overdrive, and then this, and it actually was really cool. Like it seemed like a nice way to program in automation just by like waving your hand around. Right. I mean, it's definitely more expressive, which I think is really what the direction we kind of need to be going as a genre. Mm. You know. Well. What what genre are you referring to? I'm saying just electronic music as a whole. Mm, that's pretty broad. Oh, yeah. No, I'm speaking yeah. in sweeping generalizations. Yeah. You know, yeah. as the president of EDM. <laughs> it's a funny thing, man. Like, for me as an Australian, my, uh, my musical education was much more UK-centric in in my teens and stuff you know a lot of the electronic music i listened to was all coming out of the uk and it was very much a case of like when someone american came along and did something it was like oh wow cool there's something cool coming out of america it was like remarkable um and there's still tons of amazing stuff coming out of well all corners of the globe now um right but, like, it was, it's very funny to me that, like, EDM is now, like, what people refer to electronic music as because it just 
to me sounds like some weird American thing that doesn't, it still doesn't fit in my head um, as like a label. But then I've always been really annoyed with labels. I mean, with genre labels, because they're so like inadequate at expressing anything. And you end up in these arguments with people about, is this dubstep or not? And it's just like, I just don't fucking care. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No, I mean, I just think it's like, you know, you do have, you have to, you have to stick a label on something to put it on a shelf. Yes. Well, it's a marketing yeah. thing, right? Right. Yeah. And that That's makes sense. How I see it. Yeah, I mean, if you put the label IDM on something, I'll probably listen to it. Yeah, I mean, but, we definitely were talking about that. I um, was, let's say, inspired to produ produce my own primer on music mm. the other day, and you said you had reviewed some of that. And... Yeah, um, so do I have it in front of me? Uh, there's a bunch of stuff on there. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's I approve. This is good. I'm um, guessing it's the uh, Aphex Twin and the uh, Noisia. I do like Noisia. Um, yeah, Aphex Twin, obviously fantastic. And that particular track, or the tracks, um, Vord Horseman and Xtalf, um, are very dear to me. Um, I think like one of the first, so the first electronic music that I properly listened to was the album New Forms by Ronnie Size. I don't know if you know that. Record, I have no idea. He's, he was a really early drum and bass guy. Um, How do you spell that for like the people at home? R-O-N-I Size is his name. But the, yeah, the album's called New Forms. And it's a really great drum and bass album. And he did it as part of this group called Represent, um, where they had like live double bass and vocalists. And actually there were several people that were producing. Um, uh, DJ Die was one of them. I don't know. These are all like early, early drum and bass guys. But like that was that was a part. Of, that was some of the first music I listened to in earnest. That wasn't just stuff I'd like heard on the radio and TV. Right, right. Because like my cousin gave my mum a CD, my older cousin, and then my mum gave the CD to me, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And just blew my tiny mind. And um, how old were you at this point? I must have been like ten or 12 wow. or something like it would have been at around the end of primary school. And then like after that, <clears throat> I got a copy of the Aphex Twin selected ambient works, 85 to 92. Yep. And then, um, yeah, my yeah I think that was one of my sort of more proper introductions to electronic music as well, just because my cousins weren't really into it. Mm. Oh, they were really into it. We're really into it. I yeah, don't, I yeah. don't, we don't talk very much. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I basically started following like Warp Records and all those artists and like Walls of Canada and Square Pusher and like everything adjacent to that. And Square Pusher, that is the name I was looking for when I was making this list that I couldn't mm. remember, I couldn't think of. Mm. Square Pusher is incredible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there's still tracks of his that you listen to from you know, around the early 2000s that sound current in terms of... Right, production. that's what's insane about it. You, yeah. It's like, how did this come out in 20... How did this come out in 2008? Well, it just explains, you know, how... Like, he obviously knew a lot of stuff about mixing and sound design that it took a, the industry, like, a long time to, to learn the same lessons. Right. Um, 
it's amazing now though the quality of the quality of electronic music that's put out now is just insane um like i was just saying to you earlier like i have this track that i might have wanted to include in this episode i still might but it's not really mixed as well as i'd like and there are some issues if i'd made that track like i've been writing electronic music for 20 years more more than 20 years um since since my mid-teens if i'd made the music that i make now like even 10 years ago i wouldn't hesitate to release it but like right i guess the standard in general has risen so much and my standards have risen so much that i feel hesitant to put it out yeah i think um um, actually that was something i wanted to discuss because it was something i was discussing on my discord server the other day Mm. was just sort of the way that like technology has been changing and like how much you think like technology is influencing the art versus the art is influencing the technology you know what i mean Mm -hmm. because it's like there's definitely a case where a lot of like for things to sound contemporary it's kind of just a matter of a bunch of people operating at very similarly incredibly high levels just with some people getting more experimental and contemporary Mm. like synths or effects and that kind of just pushing them over the edge Mm. in a way you know? I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean? You mean like developing new techniques that give them more visibility? That well, I guess it's like how much more, how much is the art pulling the technology versus the other way around? You know what I mean? Mm. Well, I mean, I think that the technology, like it, it, for electronic music, the technology totally drives the art, and it, it has since the beginning. Like, if you look at if you look at jungle, right, which right. like hardcore and jungle is kind of where a lot of the contemporary IDM stuff stems from. Um, if you have an Akai sampler and like Cubase VST on a, I mean, sorry, just Cubase on an Amiga and uh, a Juno keyboard, like you can make atmospheric jungle. Like that's, that's kind of one of the things that that technology enables you to do. Um, and like so much about that sound is tied to the hardware. And then, uh, you know, if you look at like the late nineties, early two thousand stuff, it's totally like, here's what you could do with like Cubase VST when you're using plugins and, or pro tools and you can like micro edit samples and, and do all this stuff. Like this is the sound of that. And like only like the extraordinary artists like uh, Boards of Canada or stuff who had very alternate processes made stuff that was really outside that kind of thing. Um, Right. Like you listen to like, I guess like Fortet is someone I've listened to like mm. talk about his process and it seems like just a completely different dimension from the way that music is made. (laughs) Most of the people making music. Well, he's, he's like a real minimalist, right? Like he just doesn't even care about gear. He just has like some software and there wasn't, there was that meme, right? Of his, of his, his tweet. Here is the, here is the, uh, the full technology and place where I, you know, here's all the gear I use to make my latest album. And it's just like a laptop audio interface and a couple of monitors. And that's, that's the whole thing. Right. Um, and people riffed on that meme pretty hard. It was pretty funny. But, um, yeah, I don't know. The whole, I mean, I'm very much a process kind of person. Like, all of the, 
the thing that stimulates me to write is changing processes and ad adopting new tools and um, you know every time I kind of try a different process something interesting creatively happens sorry it's not very it's not a very good approach if you just want to get things done but fortunately like I'm not a professional musician right I honestly don't care if I ever put out anything again or anything um, but I would like to and I will continue to work on it but like I have the luxury of just doing what's fun. I don't have to, you know, crank them out. If I did, I'd probably just pick a process and stick with it. Right. No, I mean, I kind of feel the same way. And correct me if I'm wrong in equating these. It's like you kind of feel like you need to sort of almost reinvent the wheel with every sort of track you make in terms of the way you're doing things or else you just kind of get bored. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I do. The main problem I have is that I tend to get bored of stuff when it's like 98% done. Yep. And then I just can't bring myself to listen to it. Um, like what I need to do probably is just be more comfortable putting things on ice for six months and then not even thinking about it and then going back. Um, right. But like when I really like something that I've made, I tend to listen to it to death and then I don't like it anymore. So... So yeah, so then you either release it in a rush and you're like, if I had put this on ice for six months and then revisited it, I, it could have been ten times better mm. kind of thing. I had that this week. I like we did a song maybe a year ago now, I think. I was listening to it and I was just like I felt like such shame that I had put it out and the quality it was for like what the tune was. Mm. Yeah, and it's a I mean have that? Yeah, I mean I've I used to I've released a few things over the years, like on, on other people's releases and stuff um and like ages ago actually released a bunch of like a couple of albums and stuff but that's all gone um probably for the best but like i used to upload a lot of stuff to soundcloud and i don't like the way that I don't, I don't like the way that for me, when I put something out, if I upload something or whatever, it seems to define something about what I'm doing. And if I want to define what I'm doing, I kind of want to be more deliberate about it. Right, right. So it's, it's hard for me to kind of get, like, I really just want to get, I have a couple of things that I just need to polish and put out, but, you know, life gets in the way and. I got a lot of other responsibilities, so it, it often just falls by the wayside, and I end up playing video games instead. <laughs> <laughs> when I ha when I have free time, I just want to like not be thinking really hard. Right. But you yeah. know, like at the start of the year, I was actually seriously considering quitting my job and spending the full year just working on music. Really. Mm, that was my plan. Um, and then. At the time, with my current project, I didn't feel comfortable leaving that soon. And then I was trying to, like, line things up, and then COVID happened. And then I was like, mm -hmm. oh, well, I'm really glad I didn't quit my job because the future is looking pretty uncertain right now. It's looking a bit more on track now, but 
Oh, we got slammed again. We um, Our quarantine went uh, back into full force in New York State today. Mm. So we're no longer even. We were going into the office two days a week um, for half days just to have some face time with mm. people. Mm. Um, and yeah, you were time, saying you hate working from home. I cannot stand it. I'm mm. just incredibly extroverted. Um, you know, I never feel more at home than like in like a room with like, you know, 20 other people at, like midnight, mm. like working on a project like that to me is home. Right. You know what I mean? Well, I, f- I find that really fun. Like when you do have the whole team together and, and you know, shit's happening and you're, you're really making progress and that feels really good. Um, and it's like motivating to do that. But like I can do that in crunch times and that's te- that. So the preface, the, the background for this is before COVID, I was already working from home for a few years. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So I elected to work from home uh, maybe three or four years ago. And it was like a night and day difference to my well-being. Like, I'm so much happier working from home. But like, because I chose to work from home, I fully set myself up to work from home. You know, I, I have right. like a an office that's separate to the house. You know, if I'm, and it's only, it's only an office. It doesn't like, I'm in it now and it just has like a couch, my desk and the computer over there. And, and when I'm in here, I'm just working. Um, so like I do kind of have an office to go to, but because I'm actually quite an introverted person, um, I really like having my own time and space to just be disconnected from people Wait, so then are you in sf area or where are you i'm in australia oh you're in australia mm. so like that's why american politics doesn't it's not even relevant to me really but right it's entertaining <laughs> yeah i was gonna reference some of the uh, new um google has some very big and interesting buildings that uh are currently happening in mountain view right yeah yeah i've seen the plans it looks pretty uh I don't know what the word is. It's like Logan's Run or something. Yeah. I don't even know. I don't know what Logan's Run is. Oh, it's a 70s sci-fi movie that you really should see. Oh, that that sounds like that would be where they would pull from. Yep. Um, yeah, lots of like big glass sheets and, you know. Of right, course, you've of seen course, that one then with, yeah, yeah. with like the folding sort of sheets that are supposed to be like solar panels. But it's like a weird like static steel tent almost. Yep. Yeah, it's fucking hideous, man. I don't, I don't like, I mean, you know, we've had this conversation before, like a lot of architecture that is interesting is actually not very functional or it's not very like, uh, attractive even, right? Like obviously it's subjective whether you like the look of it or not. Right. But like, for example, uh, what is it? Uh, Apple's. Apple's new campus, um, the donut, oh, the, the glass the donut. donut. Yeah. You know, it's a beautiful object, of course. Um, and but calling it a beautiful object is <laughs> the exact right way to put it. Mm. But um, yeah, I've, I if people I know that have worked in there. They say it's just a nightmare. Like acoustically, it's really noisy. Tons of reflection. 
it, you don't feel like you have any privacy. People walk into the windows all the time. Like, cause there's, you know, just, there's these walls that are just glass. So if you like zone out, you just walk, can walk into a wall. There's, and right, well, the idea that the you would put a strip, curve. you know, they don't put the marking on it so you can see it or anything. Yeah. Um, the architect who did, who's doing the new uh, Google buildings actually has an, um, a new museum for Audubon spaghetti. And all of the walls are glass, but they're structural glass. Mm-hmm. So by curving the glass, they have no interior walls. It's <laughs> the entire roof is supported by glass. Jesus. But sounds as you can warm. imagine. Okay. What? <laughs> it sounds like it's warm in there. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much you can do with glazing. But mm-hmm. even with triple pane glazing, mm-hmm. um, you can't match a real wall. Or, I mean, you can... Yeah. Well, the other reason that I love working from home is because uh, contemporary offices, I think, are just terrible. And, like, there's this idea that um, the open plan office space inspires collaboration and cross-pollination of ideas and all kinds of fancy ideas. But uh, yep. in practice, it means that I have to spend the whole day with my headphones on to get any work done. So Right. Um yeah, I'm currently uh, designing one of those, let's say, <laughs> where those ideas are um, being given a high amount of value. Yeah. Yeah, well, whenever, you know, like, I, I, I'm normally working out of the Sydney office and I've spent quite a lot of time doing that. And we have our, it's fairly fairly large place. Um, and, you know, we've done remodelings and of buildings that we've moved into and stuff and they're always like, let's get some feedback from the employees and see what they want. And everyone's like, I want an office with a closing door. <laughs> That's like All right. what everyone wants and nobody gets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want, yeah, I mean, there. I think it depends culturally as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I think like, and like financial like offices and stuff, they seem to be more into, more into that. Mm-hmm. Well, don't they, they, they dangle like, they dangle that you get a corner office with a door and stuff. If you make partner or whatever, it's like part of the pr- career. Progression. Well, no, I mean, they, they're more into the open office. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. I think by nature, sort of more extroverted people in a weird way. I don't mean to generalize in any mm-hmm. kind of way, but well, I mean, the weird thing is, is that in the software industry, this is the standard having the open plan. Right. Which is weird. Cause like with the people who work in that industry, it seems very kind of counterintuitive yeah yeah i mean in general engineers tend to be more introverted often they're on the autism spectrum to some degree you know uh having like quiet and just by the nature of the work like having quiet time to think deeply about the problem is like essential to getting anything done so right because you're handling you know very kind of tech you're handling very technical issues you're not Mm your entire day isn't just been courting with other people. Mm. I mean, the more, the more senior you are, the more that is the case that you are coordinating. Like I'm, my role now is, is a leadership kind of role. So I spend a lot of time like yesterday, I spent basically the whole day in meetings, helping people do their work. So, but it's nice that, you know, working from home, I get to talk to them and then when the meeting's over, they're gone. And then I'm on my own again. Whereas like, if I was in the office and I had like this hour long meeting and then when it sat down at my desk and then someone tapped me on the shoulder and was like, Hey, I'd just be like, what? 
<laughs> what is it? Uh, yeah. Um, so, I don't know. It is interesting yeah. how, you know, some people are like, hell yeah, I love this work from home thing now. And other people just can't stand it and have to get back to it. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard too much of people like not liking it in the same way where I'm just like feeling like I'm in a cage. Mm. No, I, I have a few friends that have feel the same way you do. They're just like suffocated. Oh. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's just me and the cat just staring at each other all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you got a pet. That's good. That's nice. Yeah. Um, but music production, vital, vital, vital. Haven't are you, tried it. Are you using this? Haven't tried, Haven't tried it. it. Um, um, I try, so I try to resist the allure of shiny new things, um, because it's very distracting. Yes. Um, yes, it is. And it can be expensive if you decide to go down there, but like I own a modular synth, so like what I say about expensive is probably comes across pretty highfalutin. Um, <laughs> but like my, 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 my take on plugins. Well, actually I can back up and give you a story. So when I originally started producing electronic music, all I had was Fruity Loops before it was FL studio on my, uh, well before Fruity Loops, I used a thing called rebirth, which is a, 303, 808, an 808, and 909 emulator, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, then I used uh, Fruity Loops, and then I used FL Studio, and then I used, uh, what is it, um, Reason. And these were all great, and I was got really good at them. Um, I didn't tend to use like tons of plugins or anything, I just used what was there and like I really liked that but then I started because I was I'd finished high like university and everything and then I spent all my days like sitting in a computer screen working and then when I wanted to like make music the last thing I wanted to do was sit in front of a computer and so I uh, as I noticed I started to lose interest in production for that reason I decided to get into hardware stuff and also conveniently by that time like I had a better job and I could actually afford to like buy synths and stuff. Right. It's going to be, it's interesting how your mind will shift to like shift to those things when you, when you have the means to do them. Yeah. I just like never even let myself contemplate the idea of buying a keyboard synth or anything. Like it was, it was just in the same way that I wouldn't buy a BMW, like even today, like new, it just doesn't even factor into what is realistic to me. But like by right. this point, it was like, oh, you know what? Like maybe I should revisit that policy. And then, um, yeah, like getting into modular, like Eurorack stuff, it really reignited my like passion for for experimentation. And I could happily just like sit there at my modular and like noodle around for hours and not feel like I was at work. Um, and I really liked that it's not a very visual thing. So like you spend a lot more time listening and thinking than you do like looking. And I still have that problem of like part of my brain when I'm working in a door, like part of my brain wants to line things up or make things symmetrical or make things neat. Um, and like that can defeat how it sounds like sounds often aren't symmetrical or anything. Um, 
so like disengaging the visual part of my brain was a great education and like I learned a lot about sound design and about uh, just time you know time in terms of music because like when you look when you have like a visual impression of like what a project looks like you imagine that how it sounds in terms of time is different to how it looks in terms of time does that make sense like right well i mean you're talking about the relationship of kind of having this sort of hierarchical grid versus the way that when you produce a sound your the attack on everything isn't zero mm. you know there is looseness Mm. to the way trans way transients hit and um there's a maybe an insincerity to the idea of having everything lined up mm. well it's also like versus, it's also like you know you say say you have like an intro or, or you're laying out a song and you're like all right i'll have 16 bars of this and then 16 bars of that and then blah 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 whereas like if you were just like playing it on a guitar or something like would you think about it that way or would you be like oh you know what i think i should go to the next bit now or you know you, you don't necessarily like uh, when you're experiencing a song, you're not thinking like, Oh, that was a good 16 bars. Now what's going to happen now? You know, you, you just kind of experience it. And like some things you could listen to the same thing for like 64 bars and then other things it only really deserves like eight bars or just to be part of something. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess that was my thought is like, if I wasn't looking at a grid, just things would just never end. <laughs> All my songs would just be 15 minutes long. Yeah. Well, that's what happens, happened with my modular stuff is I'd end up with like hours of recordings and then I would like find, you know, I would go over them and find like, you know, five minutes of good stuff that I could splice together and. You know, but it wasn't about like making a finished product. It was just about re-engaging that part of my brain after I'd kind of gotten alienated. And then after like doing that for a long time, I was like, right, well, I actually do want to be writing some music now, um, like properly. And so I got Ableton a few years ago and got back into plugins and software and became proficient in that again and then was able to like use the modular, but then arrange in software and then do sound design and software as well. And, bring it all together and I, the journey to, left me with a lot of skills that I'm happy to have. Um, but this is a long way of answering the question about plugins, which is just that, um, the last plugins I bought were all a year ago and it was all around this time of year on the, the cyber Monday sales or whatever. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask where your top, my kind of notorious, top five favorite and least favorite yeah. plugins question. Yeah. So I thought about this a little bit for the favorite ones at least. Um, and I think that the Kilohertz transient shaper is my favorite individual plugin. Uh, yeah. I re I re-upped my uh, Kilohertz subscription this weekend because I found myself missing their suite so mm -hmm. much when I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Like it's such an incredible amount of plugins. Yeah, and they and, and they're, they're really well designed. So good. Yeah, just yeah. I'm I'm very impressed by it. Phase Plant's great, and like Multipass and Snap Heap and all that is. I just use it all the time. Um, uh, so yeah, that's that's like that's like my number one. But then I would put, I guess you know maybe let's just say number one is like 
the Killer Hearts bundle. Like I use, whenever I want to do a design sound with a synth, I will use Phase Plan almost always because there's just so much I can do with it. And I, I really like right. the modulation section and everything. But like... Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and the other, the other big favorites are Gatekeeper, which is very, very nice. What's that? It's a, it's a plugin that does um, like volume shaping. So you can either run it like in free mode where it'll, you know, you, it, it, you can like make a pattern and it will just like shape the amplitude of the sound coming through to that pattern. Um, but like what people really commonly use it for is ducking. So you, you whack it on a bus like if you look at Bill's, Mr. Bill's tutorials on, on side chaining, um, he uses Gatekeeper where he'll put everything that's not drums on a single group and then put Gatekeeper on the group and then trigger that Gatekeeper instance with his kick and snare. And then um, you just draw a curve and it just like ducks the volume for that period of time. And it's just... Like for that purpose alone, it's worth it. But then you can actually use it creatively in really interesting ways too, which I think is fun. But like, it just gives you really nice control over exactly how much you want to duck and for how long and like what the slope looks like. And, you know, right. it's a good mixing tool. Um, and the other, I have to mention like the fab filter uh, limiter is really, really good. Um, yeah, what is, what's the, I, I don't want to, I'll say, what's the deal with the fab filter limiter, but what is the, I, I people praise it a lot. Um, so the reason I like it is because it has a very nice interface where you can really understand the relationship between like what you're doing and the effect, um, which with limiting is such a subtle thing, right? Like it's not it's very easy to make changes to limiters that have a subtle enough effect that it's difficult to hear, but it does like affect how you psychoacoustically perceive the music, like in terms of loudness. Um, so I've used a bunch of different limiters over the years and Pro L2 is the one that I find I can actually get things that I like the sound of out. Whereas using other limiters, either it's like a bit poppy or, you know, a bit peaky or there's some, you know, I just can't wrangle it as well. But, um, you know, I'm not like some hotshot mixing engineer. So all I know is I put Pro L2 on my master and I tweak it to taste and my stuff sounds louder and, and, uh, you know, more like the things that I'm referencing. So that's basically and it, and, you know, it, has, it has good metering and like good metering really helps get things sounding clean. Um, yeah. I find it amazing how terrible the metering is in Ableton. Like, can you just give us some more built-in spectrographs and, you know, there's, there's so much stuff that they could just give us, but instead it's another spectral resonate whatever. I don't know. Spectral, resonating, whatever, I don't know. (laughs) 
So that's that's three. It's three. You have Gatekeeper Brew. We got the Killheart Suite. And Pro we have Pro L2. I was going to say, like, with Pro L2, like, it's probably also because the people you're referencing are also probably using Pro L2. Yeah. I try to reference across big time periods. Like, I try to not just use tracks written in 2020, um, but rather think back to, like, some of my favorite tracks of all time and just kind of think about them. And, like, I I don't have any desire to, like, compete with anyone, but like certainly not to compete with like whoever is making big waves in the EDM scene or whatever. Like I don't need to have that sound. And the kind of music that I write is not like, I mostly write stuff that's more experimental and less dance oriented. So the. Right. Um, you know. Yeah. I guess we haven't really touched on that in kind of a real way, but I guess I'm kind of parsing together that you produce in the kind of German bass, IDM ambient kind of space. Yeah. So less less drum and bass like that is so difficult um if you want to make a good drum and bass tune like the engineering is basically everything um and i ain't got time for that it's too like i've i spent years just writing drum and bass and i never got anything that i really thought was banging enough you know um so mostly what I write is uh, like IDM in the kind of mid early 2000s warp records sense. Um, and like the latest stuff I've done is kind of like, uh, I guess a bit Boards of Canada inspired, a bit like Prefuse 73 inspired, Fortet, a bit of like um, like John Hopkins kind of vibe. Um, right. Yeah. Like I really like melodies and harmonies. I really like weird sounds. Like to give you an idea, my favorite producer of all time, um, is Tipper because he has like the best melodies, the best sound design, the best mixing. Um, and like his stuff takes me to a place like intellectually and emotionally that's very interesting like he's very like um mysterious all right where would you where would you start with tipper i don't know like track wise Ooh, i think that if you want an intro to tipper you probably should listen to um well mm. It would depend who I was recommending it to. If you're like someone who likes modern dance music, then you should just listen to his album Forward Escape, um, which is just amazing from start to finish. Um, right, but what about maybe someone who's sort of more on the sound designery kind of end of things? I think yeah. the communities that we sort of are in, that's kind of what people are into. Yeah, well, then in that case, his previous his album previous to that, which is called Broken Soul Jamboree, is more uh it's less structured put it that way okay but like i mean both of them are just full of amazing sound design like it's i mean really you could just like go to tipper on soundcloud and press play on the popular tracks and you'll just be like holy shit man this is amazing and if you're not then you're no friend of mine (laughs) 
It's uh, men without hats. <laughs> right? Do I... Uh, is it? Yeah. We can dance if we want oh, to. Oh, that's right. Leave your friends behind. That's novelty it. songs. Novelty songs. Canadian new wave novelty songs. It's like a... It was like a predecessor to like that... Uh, what's it called? Cotton Eye Joe song. Oh, my God. Was that did did Cotton Eye Joe herald Electro Swing? Is that is that what happened? I think they were the first band to clone themselves. I know, <laughs> but I don't know if they heralded Electro Swing. Well, if they did, they did a bad thing. Um, well, elaborate on this. This is you not you, you have a you not across the Electro Swing kind of thing. Um, I when I look at um. When I look at things I don't like, I don't tend to stare at them for too long. Someone said that last week. Um, What's that? Toast, Toast said that to you last week. Oh yeah, he did. Well, imagine <laughs> biting, me, imagine me being, imagine me being influenced by my environment. <laughs> yeah. So actually, there's not really like any music that I really hate, except for music that is um, really, really boring and like banal. Like, and usually if it's just boring and banal, I won't hate it unless I'm like force, forcibly exposed to it repeatedly. Right. And like right. the thing that I find troublesome about Electro Swing is that it's one of those things that are like, swing music's cool, dance music's cool, let's just mush them all together and this will be great. And like, to a certain kind of person, they hear that and they're like, this is great. And then when I hear it, I just kind of think, I, this, there's nothing in this for me. Um, so, I don't know. I don't want to trash it. Like, if you enjoy, like, whatever you enjoy, good for you. Like, I don't... I mean, I think, I think trashing things is can be good, especially if it's in, like, understood place of respect. I think we should be doing it more. I mean, that's kind of a hot take I've been developing lately. You think people should be sharing more of their negative opinions? Um, I think there should be, spa there should be spaces to do that in a constructive way. Oh, absolutely. Maybe. That's true. And I don't think that that's, there's enough of that is what I'm saying is like, obviously there is enough like, you know, abject negativity that's mm. sort of far reaching and societally d destructive. Mm. But I mean, in terms of like, there's not a lot of space to say like, yeah, I think the palette of this song is terrible. I think, you know, like, I think sonically they're, I don't understand what you're doing and I'm not a particularly big fan of it. I don't think there's a lot of room to constructively do that. Yeah. But I, I kind of, I kind of feel like with art, like if you don't like it, as you say, you can just ignore it. Like it doesn't. Right. Right. And like you, like what is the goal of criticizing someone's art? If people are enjoying it, like are you trying to make them not enjoy it or are you trying to, I don't mean you, Specifically, I just mean in general. Like, well, we can we can talk about the royal way and yeah. sort of talk about the I guess the greater topic of art criticism in general, mm. right? Because that's kind of what you're getting getting at. Well, I mean, I understand like art criticism. 
it serves interesting like to me i think there are like two roles that art criticism serves and like one of them is you know if i look up the movie reviews i can get an idea of what it's about and whether it's a movie that i would like like that's that's useful and like album reviews i used to read album reviews but now you can just listen to the album you don't need to buy it so like i don't need to read right. a review i just listen to it and decide if i like it or not i don't have to like be told this is good and then check it out um so like there's that kind of curatorial role that art criticism fills where like you're trying to inform people about what's out there and give them a framework in which to understand it and whatnot. But then there's also the role of like the intellectual way of like, uh, analyzing art and making observations that, or, or drawing conclusions about like what the artists are doing and why, and the virtues of that and, or not. And it's like a kind of uh, parasitical scene on top of the art itself. Like, that evolves like a crust of mold, you know? Um, and I don't mean that to denigrate it. I just mean like, well, if it, you wanted to not denigrate, it, you could say like a creme brulee sort of crust. It is like the, it is like the sugar and a creme brulee. It is. Although, you know, in that case, to me, the sugar and the creme brulee is the best part. Whereas in the art and art criticism way, the art is the best part for me. And like, it I was very difficult to have, um, art criticism that is better than the art itself. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever read any of like Lester Bangs's work in Rolling Stone from the last century, like some of his music writing was better than the music he was writing about. Um, and you know, there is, there is, there's nothing quite like reading a takedown of a piece of art that you really hate. Right. Like if you see it, right, right. if I ever see a movie and I hate it, I'll go and look up a review and like validate my feelings by having someone write it down. Um, I love um, negative reviews of things like I love, I think is like a thing I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that says about me as a person, but you know, we can draw those conclusions. I don't think you're alone in the least. Um, um yeah, it's a big, but, it's a big um, industry. <laughs> yeah, but I think, um, like, I was reading, like, like I love the like latest Strokes album, mm. uh, the new Abnormal. Which, what a what a title for an album that came out this April. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, is this it? Was a pretty great title for an album that came out right around nine eleven. Mm. Um, now that I think about it, there, you know, Julian Casablanca has his finger on the pulse. Yeah. So what we're really trying to get at. Um, well, I kind of find like the strokes and also I noticed, you know, this like LCD sound system, like they're these people that are kind of canny and I appreciate their sort of, um, aptitude and, and, you know, like, as you say, having their finger on the pulse, being able to kind of be social observers, but I listen to the music. I just don't care. It just doesn't, doesn't grab me. I, I was gonna do, I was gonna go into a top five and uh, I was gonna do like a thing where I listed five artists and from the list and got your thoughts on them and LCD sound system was gonna be the last one right well because I, I be, doesn't do anything for you I find I find it amusing but it doesn't 
it doesn't make me want to dance even. Although, I, you no. know, some of it, like, if it comes on at a party or something, I'll definitely, I'm not going to leave the room or anything. But, like, right. I, ne- I never put it on. Like, I've heard it secondhand enough times that I don't, I don't need to, like, sit and listen. Right. But what else were you, what, what other artists were you going to name? Oh, I was going to make a point about the uh, Strokes album is, um, like, reading, like, some music criticism, especially about, like, I guess that kind of music is the sort of ham-fisted need to do like weird callbacks to like try to make their art their reviews appear clever rather than being clever. Right. Like the strokes review ended with like some line about the strokes not putting in any effort because they're just way too tired, <laughs> which is a callback to the song to a song up their first album. Right. Right. Um, and that's how they ended the review. But it's like, that's exactly like what I find like kind of both hilarious and terrible about music criticism right now, especially in like the sort of post pitchfork mm. um, space for like rock music. Yeah. And like what, I think what that might've been... actually been the pitchfork review. Of, <laughs> actually. Yeah. I mean, uh... Pitchfork is kind of like one of those things where they were early. Well, not really, actually. They, they, if you give something good, a bad review, it just drives attention. Right. Like, right. Right. People love slaying sacred cows and get a ton of pushback and, you know, but if you look at like the pitchfork review for go plastic, the, square pusher album one of the one of those albums this was i think it was released in like 2001 or something and it sounds amazing today and it's incredibly inventive and fun and cool and emotional and everything um i would say one of the top idm albums of all time and they gave it like four and a half out of ten well i think i think that was kind of a point i was sort of gracefully moving toward is I think electronic music journalism is either non-existent or in a very, very bad spot. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. I mean, yeah, like I was kind of getting at before, I don't really know what the function of music reviewers is now. Like if you can just immediately listen to the music, there's no, like what value are they adding? Well, I think it was one of the things you said where they're sort of giving a context mm. for what people are doing and creating a context for the work to exist in, mm. you know? Yeah, well, I loved, I loved uh, the, you know, the best journalism, in my opinion, is just the long-form stuff where they get really deep in on something and research and bring all this stuff together. And, you know, it's not just an opinion. It's like, right. tell the story, you know? Right, and so I think, like, that there is, like, a space for that mm. with electronic music where people are kind of painting the story of like, you know, like you said, painting the story of how this music makes sense or maybe then why it doesn't make sense Mm. in the context of the things it's clearly sort of pulling from. Mm. Mm. And that there's value there, but obviously with the sort of contemporary models of media, that's long form content is mostly only audio. Yeah. Tends to be. I used to go to like longreads.com and read stuff linked from there a lot. Now I'm just trying yeah, I mean, to read today, books. Today, like, um, 
medium is like a long form is like very long form for a lot of people i think yeah this will take five minutes to read what five minutes i could watch you know 300 vines in that time does anyone remember vine is that still a thing yeah it's not a thing no i, I know i know it's under. not a thing they didn't go under they just didn't Twitter just shut them down because they just didn't want to run it anymore? Oh, they were. I thought they, I thought they like went bankrupt or something. I didn't know that. No, they the were. They Twitter were owned, they were owned by Twitter, and then they were like, "Yeah, this isn't going anywhere." Right. <laughs> we don't know how we're going to monetize this. Yeah. People are having way too much uh, fun. Yeah. That, you know. The uh, problem with uh, Spotify right now. I don't know if you care to get into that, or we can we can avoid that if you want to. I probably don't have anything educated to say about Spotify. So Fair enough. That that other people wouldn't uh, have already said. Right. Um, okay, moving on. I, I have a list of questions here, and we we barely scratched the surface of them. Um, I feel like we're we're okay. we've how long have we been going at it? Like an hour and a half now. Hour and a half now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, okay. Let's see. I can I can keep going for a little while, but uh, see yeah. how you feel. Um, okay, five, top five least favorite VSTs. Yeah. See, I thought about this one, and like uh, anything that doesn't grab me immediately, I just won't use. Um, uh, yeah, I find it like odd that there is nothing that people like think like. I love the sound this makes, but it is horrendously designed. Mm. You know, like, I find it weird that like there's not more of that. Mm. Yeah, well, I was trying to think like what's the latest thing that's been like what what do I what what's been crashing a lot like what what's been causing me problems you know and I the thing I settled on is actually the you know Cthulhu which is from yeah X for whatever. Steve Duda's Heck brain, yes, X for records. immense, immense brain, um, and yeah, it's this, it's this uh, arpeggiator chord thing, a MIDI device, basically. Um, but its integration into Ableton is shitty, and I know that's probably Ableton's fault. Um, it's difficult to route the MIDI out. Yep, you have to add it as an audio effect and route it weirdly. Um, but then also. I can just never quite get it to do what I want. And, you know, I'd, I'd see, like... I think I first saw it on a Dead Mouse stream or something. Um, cause, yeah, I was about to yeah. say, you see him using it, like, playing it like a an instrument onto itself, and then you go to use it, and you have to relearn how to route it every <laughs> time you use it. Well, after I bought it, I used it, like, a lot for a couple of months. And I was, you know, I got that out of the way. But then I'm usually a big fan of arpeggiators and I've basically just gone back to using the Ableton one and just like putting in the chords that I care about. Like it, it what, yeah. Cthulhu was just kind of a bit overcomplicated and not really very helpful, but you know, I'm probably just missing the point, right? Like it obviously works right. really well for some people. But that's the closest I can get to, like, I don't like this, is I tried it and it wasn't doing anything to me, for me. Right, right. 
I've written some pretty shitty plugins. Um, they would dip. You you make plugins? I have done, but like not just for myself because I don't. By the time I've done all the signal processing stuff, I don't care about the UI, and so like some of them don't even have a UI. It's just like I'll just build a new version with the parameters changed because <laughs> for, for what I want to do. Um, right. Um, but yeah, the last thing I did was like a really weird delay where instead of like the delay feeding back into itself, instead like there are many delay buffers that each have different lengths so, so that you can have uh, a delay that each, like if you have like a hit, each subsequent hit comes sooner than the previous one, like a kind of like exponential decrease in delay time but without any pitch change hmm. so like uh but it's very like you know as soon as you load it it would allocate like half a gig of ram for all the buffers and i just didn't have any patience to like make it so that it managed memory properly and then put a good ui on it and make it so that if you change the delay time like it happens smoothly instead i just like used it for my own purposes and then just was like yeah I can't be bothered. So, like, I've definitely right. got a pile of trash plugins that would populate anyone's top five if they ever got to got to use them. Right, because you have like a kind of history, like producing like streaming content and like on YouTube as well. Correct. Uh, yeah. Like, I've got a history of doing programming content. Yeah, um, I've done a lot of content around Go, that the language that I was developing. Um, lots of yeah. Talks I think and I remember seeing seeing I mean, an explanation of it that you were giving at one point. Mm. Maybe yeah, probably eight, ten months ago. Probably, and that's really fun, you know. Like I really like the interesting thing about teaching is you until you've taught something to someone, you don't really know it properly, right? So I really learned a lot more about programming from teaching people about it, um, which was great. Um, really solidifies like it makes you think about why you think what you think right so i recommend it which is kind of like what like something like this does with like your opinions yeah if you explain them to people it makes you break it down yeah. if you try to convince someone but yeah i mean opinions opinions kind of inherently are a sort of subjective so I guess if you are willing to like trace it down and see why you think something you know then it's probably useful like if you can come to the the, to the hammer down to the root yeah like the what's your fundamental belief behind thinking that electro swing is bad right like this, this right what's the what's the core assumption you're making yeah yeah, and there there would be something that's, in there that's with the me, like yeah, there'd be something in there in me that is like music should be X. Like I would have some deep seated thing that offends me about Electro Swing. I don't know. Right. I mean, I guess when I was putting together that playlist the other day, which I was kind of doing, I don't want to say in a fit of rage, but there was certainly <laughs> some anger involved in the process of putting that list together. I think. What was that, that like? Kind of, just the desire to show them, show these ignoramuses what's what. Well, someone called my. I have a 
room on my server that's called Talking Heads Talk. Mm-hmm. And I just put that kind of music in there. Like, I've been putting a lot of The Rapture in there lately. Because I lo- fucking love The Rapture. Or at least the first album. I'm not even, not even aware of it. Oh, um, it was just another DFA album. Oh, okay. You probably wouldn't. Uh, you probably wouldn't like it if you don't like LCD. It's that kind of. Yeah. Uh, somewhere between like punk and like dance rock. Right. Yeah, like I, I really. It's funny. I really like. You know, guitar band music. At some point, I really yeah. disconnected from that. But then I have these weird moments of like very strong desire to listen to stuff like that but not not on that not on the angle that you're talking like i i really like listening to like virtuosic guitarists who just like okay yeah, you know, yeah. that's really masturbatory kind of stuff um well not always but like a huge swath of what i listen to is jazz like i it's like kind of like my main two genres that i love is like electronic music and jazz the the, 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 the two and i think the reason why is i can find music in both those big genres that is very very challenging to listen to and that's kind of what i gravitate towards is like stuff that stuff that gives me a lot to think about right Mm -hmm. um and i find in a lot of like guitar band kind of music it's just a bit too uncomplicated right no and i kind of i completely agree with that um Back to my point, I think the sort of core assumptions I made where I like things that are have like at least some level of tongue and cheekness is like really, really necessary for mm. me. Like there has to be some kind of level of ironic sincerity going on. You ever listen to Frank Zappa? <clears throat> um, yeah, I think he's a little too on the nose for me at times and a bit too, ang- maybe a bit too angular in the wrong way. Yeah, he's very, uh, blatant right so that's that's a thing i was trying to explain to someone how i think there needs to be like a movement of like what i'm calling like hipster big room but like i couldn't i couldn't accurately articulate the difference between that and like music that's making fun of big room right and like the sort of distance between i the way that irony and sincerity interplay in kind of what i'm talking Mm -hmm. about Versus something being like straight irony, which I have like almost no interest in. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of feel like the music I listen to, I want it to be like the people that I like, right? Like, I don't want to be around right. someone who's just totally sarcastic all the time. But then I don't want to be around with someone who has no sense of irony or, or, you know, like I, I want you want a mixture of things and. At the end of the day, it needs to also be enjoyable, right? So Right, right. Yeah, so I found, like, that, and then, like, there's a lot of, like, live versions of albums where it's, like, the last time someone, like, thinks they're ever going to perform something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, they're, like, throwing themselves into the work. Like, they're com- like the artist is completely lost in mm-hmm. it. Like, I have the uh, version of, like... Um, let me look at the list really quick. Like I have um, a lot of the LCD songs are from their live mm-hmm. album. 
I should have been playing the hits because he's just losing it. Like he has this version of uh, Henry Nilsson's Jump Into the Fire. Yeah, right. It's like the second to last song. And he's just, he's like just like completely like lost any sense of the fact that he's like on a stage. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And is like fully in the world of like the song that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I feel like that with like the Killers Live at Royal Albert Hall album is kind of really well quoted for doing that as well. Yeah, I used to listen to tons of um, like metal and and part of that was like metal bootleg recordings from, from concerts. Um, you know, like Metallica and Megadeth and Slayer and you know, and then all the new metal stuff and everything. And you'd always find like these real crunchy, great performances where it was just like properly raw, you know. And my friends and I would always be sharing these MP3s of like, oh, I found this in this recording. And it's just like the, you know, when it hits right, it's like perfect. And it's rare that they get that in the studio version. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I miss live music, hey? (laughs) Right. Fuck, I haven't been to a show in like three years. Oh, wow. Okay. It's been, it's been, yeah, it's. I was supposed to see Vampire Weekend, which isn't probably the greatest example of that at all. Uh, I mean, it's got plenty of uh, plenty of cheekiness mm. and irony in it, but with sincerity, like it blends those two very well. But there's, I don't think there's any rawness in mm. in it whatsoever. Um, that I was supposed to see them in June, and well, we know how the world has shaped up since then. Mm-hmm. I think the last live gig that I went to was I saw a guy called floating points who was touring, okay, touring yeah, yeah. in Australia earlier this year. And that was good. But, um, yeah, there's been nothing going on. So, and I'm very reclusive anyway. I kind of live in the middle of nowhere. And if I want to go to a show, I kind of need to go a long way to go to the, go to the show. Often I go like right. week, weeks without even leaving my property, you know, I just kind of, Oh wow. Yeah. I'm just very happily at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless you want to do a, to- a new top five, I think that's probably a great note to end it on. No, I'm happy to, I, I really, I want to know what your, what the artists you wanted to ask me about were. Okay. Well, let's, let's do those then. Uh, Tom York. He's great. His, uh, I love Radiohead. I like some of his solo stuff. I mean, uh, yeah, wonderful. Great artist. The whole bunch of them. Let's see. Uh, who else? Let's, this list. Uh, Moby. I'll never understand <laughs> his... Have you seen his vintage drum machine collection? No. There's not. a video on YouTube. He has this collection of like, you know, the drum machines that were designed to accompany organists and they're like in big, they're in big wooden cabinets. They have big like colored buttons on them and they almost universally just have a preset set of, um, patterns to them. And this, like some of the sounds are cool, but he's got this huge collection of these drum machines that only play like preset patterns. 
and you know there's big wooden cabinets and blah 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 and it's uh it's like the dumbest collection of music gear i've seen and to me it perfectly exemplifies my feelings about moby that he's i don't get it <laughs> um my bloody valentine uh Possibly somewhat overrated um, to comment on like how they're regarded, but uh, some amazing tracks like and Loveless is really, really one of the great albums. So maybe they're not overrated, but like. Right. Well, that was my yeah. thing is I was listening to that album and I was like, with how much is going on and just the mixing on that thing is just on like a surreal level like yeah. well and also like w there was n there was nothing it kick-started like a whole movement of people going in that direction right and right I, it's funny like when i first listened to loveless i borrowed it from a friend and i was sick home from school with the flu and I was like in a flu fever dream with my headphones on listening to that album. And I, it's like the perfect state of mind to be experiencing that record. Um, and so it, it left like this extremely strong impression in my brain of like an association between that feeling and that album. Um, so I, yeah, I just, and there's some great bass lines, like really, really powerful, powerful bass lines in that album. So, yeah, if you, anyone who hasn't listened to Loveless by My Bloody Valentine should definitely do so, if you like music. Um, Ingve Malmsteen. Well, I know I said I like masturbatory guitar stuff. You, this is, that's why I brought it um, up. But he's not one of the ones that I really like. Because, you know, his... his He's too much of a caricature of the whole thing, I guess. I mean, the, the, the sort of stunt guitarists that I like are people like, you know, uh, Frank Zappa, Steve Vai, Eric Johnson, um, Guthrie Govan. Um, okay. you know. Matt, uh, with your love of jazz and master guitar guitarists, I couldn't imagine Guthrie Govan not being like... <laughs> The square, like the pin, like the perfect needle of your wheelhouse. I mean, Guthrie Govan is like so, so technically talented. It's just kind of like mind blowing. And he's very like musical, musical, like has a very deep melodic kind of take as well as technical. So mm -hmm. I, I think he, like in, in some objective sense, he may be, you know, one of the best guitarists that's ever lived. Right, like, it, well, he definitely is that, but he may be the best. It's possible, but like, you know, what does the best guitarist mean? Like, what does that mean? Right. The fact is, I listened to his album quite a bit. He released an album called Erotic Cakes, I think. Um, Sounds right. And I listened to that a bunch, and then I haven't listened to it for a very long time. So. I think I was more impressed than I was like in love with the music. 
Um, but I'm a real sucker for people who are virtuosos at anything. Like I'm definitely always interested to he- to see or hear that. All right. And speaking of that, that brings us to our last one. This kind of ties us back to your initial impressions of what this interview we're going to be. Um, craft punk. <laughs> well, in the recent episode where Grimes was featured, he poured like a craft cheese, like molten, molten cheese on Grimes's head, which to me seems totally appropriate. So yes. 10 out of 10 yes. to craft punk. I don't know why he gets so much flack on the show. He's a, he's a great character. Yeah. No, and uh, Daft Punk. Daft Punk versus Craft Punk. I mean... Daft Punk I have complicated feelings about because it's like I loved some of their early stuff and then somehow as time has gone on I like it less and less. Like... It, it appears less substanceful than it once did, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think I, like, tried to listen to, discover, like, give Discovery a proper, like, listen-through mm. with, like, quote-unquote educated ears, and I, like, I didn't find anything for mm. me in it. But, like, at the time, I remember being very moved, you know, by this Right, stuff. right. Um, and then Random Access Memories kind of confirmed all my worst fears about them, because... That was just a, to me, that album just was so hollow, like the most slickly produced empty box I've ever seen. Um, And, you know, we all heard Get Lucky like so many times that it's, it's like, to me, that's like a fever dream, that song. It's like there was, you know, there was that period where you just couldn't escape it. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing it. And so, like, even though I, you know, I think Pharrell is amazing and obviously there's a lot of great things about that track, but it just, it was like, it was, it almost came out the door overplayed. I don't even know how that's possible, but. um, Right. There was kind of no way it wasn't going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe knowing that kind of primed me to be troubled by it. But like, yeah, I just. I had started to think, oh, maybe the only reason I really liked Daft Punk is because of the time and whatever. And then when Random Access Memories came out, I was like, yep, that's what happened. Like, I was just kind of into it at the time for reasons. And now I'm not. And I don't need to, like, feel like I've forgotten or something. It's just there actually isn't anything there. I just, I don't really rate them as, as songwriters or producers. But, you know. Right. People love them, though. And people do love them. That's great. I hope people have a great time. Apparently, they do a great show. So I would, I would well, go to see them, definitely. Back, back when they did shows. Yeah. They haven't done a show since 2007. Oh, really? Has it been that long? Yeah, yeah. Like, the live 2007 was the last thing they ever did alive. Oh. Yeah. Well, if you want to see a masked electronic music producer there's always dead mouse his show is apparently pretty cool well yeah he invests a lot of money into that infrastructure mm. and you have to you it's have to be. as an electronic musician you got to have something else going on right yeah i was talking to duda about it a little bit um and about how much dead mouse is like putting money he's putting into just creating that those kind of rigs because of how expensive it is to do it externally and mm. like to hire it out. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and um, it's just insane, like how he's like had to create like a business model to do that because of how unviable it was to do what he wanted to do in the current model. Yeah, you mean like hiring people to build out the stage sets and everything, right? Like with his like the box mm. thing. Yeah, I have a I have a friend who's who, he lives lives in LA and like his his business is basically building custom cool shit for performance. And so, you know, they they have like all this skill in like manufacturing and electronics and all that stuff. But like, you know, they'll spend six months designing a glove for someone to wear at the VMAs or something and charge like half a million dollars or whatever. Yeah, you always wonder about those, those things. I had a few conversations with the person who designed like um, Kanye stages for the Yeezus tour. Mm. Mm. And... Obviously, we didn't get to go into pricing for that, but it's such a simple kind of monolithic thing that I can't imagine like how much help goes into something like that kind of. Well, how many how many know, hours were spent just filling out all the safety, you know, assurances so that they can ensure the show, right? Like, right, right. I feel like in some ways, if you design something like that, you're getting paid danger money for like agreeing to to make it for them. If Kanye falls to his death, yeah, then you're kind enough. of in trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because they designed that mountain thing Which, that he was on. He had, like this like mountain stage. Oh, I only saw like the like, big floating up. platform one. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. That was the one where he famously stopped a show in the middle and was like, that's it, I'm done. And then everyone had to kind of wait awkwardly while the stage like returned. <laughs> so that he could step off it. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so he kind of threw a tantrum um, and then just had to kind of wait until it was safe to leave. But how maddening must it be to spend six months designing a glove? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, they have a great time. I would. I oh, yeah. think, like, if you're a kind of engineering person, like, the fantasy project is. Something cool and new. You have a finite time period in which to do it. And once you've done it, it's out the door and you never have to look at it ever again. Like that's, that's like the perfect, that's the dream. That's interesting. Like architecturally, I like, very much kind of disagree. Mm. Well, I mean, you, yeah. Yeah. It's like for me, like the dream project is like you design a building, someone builds it. Ideally, it's close enough to what you wanted it to be that you're happy with it. And then you can, like, spend some time with it to, like, see how people interact with it and see what creative type of physical environment you're creating mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what you can parse for, and, like, what you can learn from that over mm -hmm. time and how that changes and how, like, those things age. Yeah. I mean... The same things are also true of like building software, for instance, but yeah, I was the, about the, to tie it back. The funnest part is, is for me anyway, is just like the, the act of creation. Um, like all the stuff that comes after is important and rewarding, but like if I could just spend all my time, like writing small programs and then like throwing them away, that would be like, so satisfying to me. 
Interesting. Mm. So I mean, you don't, so you don't have that kind of long relationship with Go, where you're kind of like. Oh, I mean, I, 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 I do, and I have, but like, it's really exhausting. Like the more, the more people care about something that you do, the less freedom you have to move when you're when you're working with it. So, you know, I, I sort of, I love the period where it's just me and my thoughts and then I get it out and see it work. And it's like you've created, it's like, you know, having kids, the funnest part is, is, is making them. And then, you know, <laughs> you know, you went more sexual on this episode than I did. <laughs> Well, that's, it's not it's not a very high bar, is it? I mean, we're not we haven't really this the, for this for for this podcast it, on a macro level, it is on a micro level, it's absolutely not right. I mean, I don't really have any interest in in going there in this context. I mean, yeah, no, I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love how you turned me me me. Um, pointing out something you did to making me feel bad about bring, bringing up something you just did. <laughs> uh, you didn't. You didn't know who you were messing with by inviting me on here. I, I deliberately was like, I'm not gonna throw any gitums. Like, I'm not gonna try to mess with you in any kind of usual way. I mean, I do that when like an interview is going south, and I don't think it's gonna be. My kind of thought is like, if it's not going to be like informative for the audience, I want it to at least be entertaining. Mm. Well, so if you if you hear me doing that, that is a sign that I have. I don't think what's happening is particularly interesting. Mm. Okay. It, so as you can see, I haven't done that at all this episode. Well, if you if you're so, still listening, I'm glad you you found it interesting. Whoever whoever you are. Um. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I wanted to come I on this podcast because I just wanted to have like an interesting conversation with someone that I don't know very well. Right, like. Right. Well, I think we succeeded. May have, may have succeeded at that. I hope so. It was interesting for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I had. No, I'm being sarcastic. I agree. No, it was a great conversation. <laughs> I'm glad we had it. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, all right. Do you have any? Where can people find like projects you're working on that you're interested in them finding? Nowhere. Don't don't look me up. <laughs> 